Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks to move. I'm Corey Johnson. Today, October 13, gives us episode 116. Well, just ahead, secret labor costs may be causing some turbulence for Delta's friendly skies. And Apple tells us that chip shortages are going to hit them hard, but maybe that's not news to those who are paying attention to what Tim Cook had to say last time around. And how long will it take the tech company Lightwave Logic to make good on a, pr- a promise to transmit data at higher speeds with less power? The promises have been long. We're going to talk to the CEO, Lightwave Logic CEO, Michael Levy. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era. Never miss another critical event or insight ever with Era. Customize your company watch list and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And you can listen to the Drill Down podcast every day on your smart speaker. For example, if you look at your Alexa speaker from Amazon, you can say, hey, hey, Alexa, play the Drill Down podcast. You can hear our latest show. And the drill down is brought to you by Brain Trust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Brain Trust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. All right, I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to the drill down. We will explain the business stories behind stocks and move. Let me first explain where we are. We're in Los Angeles all together. Isaac Webster, our executive producer, Ben Wilson, our editor extraordinaire. We're all sitting in a room here at the LD Micro Conference in Los Angeles talking to lots of publicly traded companies. Some of them aren't micro and are big enough to be on this show, and we're glad to have them, one of them coming up. But first, let's get to the three most important developments in the world of business today, Isaac. All right, Corey, let's start with inflation. U.S. inflation accelerated in September and remained at its highest rate in over a decade. The Labor Department said last month's Consumer Price Index, which measures what consumers pay for goods and services, rose by 5.4% from a year earlier in unadjusted terms. And that is the same rate as in June and July as the economy reopened, slightly higher than in August. Yeah, that uh, rate's getting higher. And interestingly, it's a lot higher in other countries. So if you look at uh, what the, the inflation rate is in countries that are sort of further away from the United States, further away from Europe, you say inflation rate's even higher than that. Uh, it's a global issue, and it's not. It's headed in the wrong direction. All right, let's move on to uh, something that might be headed in the right direction. One of the country's busiest ports, the Port of Los Angeles, where we are now, will operate around the clock in an effort to ease cargo bottlenecks that have led to shortages and higher consumer costs. By going to a 24-7, the Port of Los Angeles uh, will be joining the neighboring Port of Long Beach, California, which started doing something similar last month that we reported on here on the show. The major ports in Asia and Europe, I want to point out, have operated around the clock for years. This is all about the ILWU. Uh, I have the, no idea what those what those letters mean. Those are the letters for the uh, the, the union that uh, governs ah, the yes. workers at the docks, um, and they decide when they're going to work and what the rules are around their work. Um, and um, you know, the twenty four seven thing is also a competitive thing. The Port of Los Angeles is just losing business. The Port of Long Beach and the ports in Oakland. Yeah, and this is something uh, the Biden administration was pushing them to do, and they finally did it. All right, let's move on to Italy. Italy's national airline, Alitalia, will fly its last flight this week. For many years, the 75-year-old airline symbolized Italy's post-war boom, 
But the COVID-19 pandemic delivered the final blow to a company propped up by Rome for years. Alitalia has been in an has been in an Italian version of bankruptcy protection since 2017. It hasn't turned an annual profit in two decades, and a strike this week led to the cancellation of more than 100 flights. So, goodbye, Arrivederci, Alitalia. One of us had to go there. Maybe not. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Let's stay with the airlines and talk about Delta Airlines. Delta Airlines trades under DAL. Shares fell almost 6% today, but they've gained 29% in a year. What's new with Delta? Well, unlike Alitalia, Delta turned a profit. Uh, their first profit since the start of the pandemic. Um, double what Wall Street expected. I never say that because it shows you how dumb Wall Street expectations are in the game of trying to play beat that or meet that or whatever. Silliness. What really matters is the business is growing and getting better after receiving vast fortunes in, uh, in stimulus uh, to help keep the company afloat or in the skies or whatever. Revenues of $9.15 billion in the third quarter. Earnings of $1.2 billion, a first profit to the say since the pandemic. There's a lot of conversation. You mentioned that the stock sold off today. There's a lot of conversation on the conference call this morning about their labor costs and what it was like to hire and what it was like. You know, we have the, the, the ghost of what's going on with Southwest right now. So there's a lot of talk about what it meant for hiring workers right now, how hard it was to hire workers and is to hire workers, and why they aren't showing the productivity if their hiring costs are going so up. CEO Ed Bastian actually had some interesting comments about, you know, it's like shedding light on, look, you got to hire people before you put them in a plane, you got to train them. You've got to rebuild in these, these airplanes and make sure their maintenance is up to bed. So as business is picking up, as business for travel returns, here I am on my first business trip, purely business trip of the year. And traveling more, people are traveling more for business. We're seeing the airlines get busier and busier. They've got to get the plans ready. They've got to hire people and pay people to do that before they get the revenue from those flights. So Ed Bash and the CEO suggesting that what we're going to see uh, is some bigger expenses in labor before we sort of see the result of top line growth. Here's Ed Bastian. You know, we have a lot of premium pay, overtime, a lack of quote-unquote productivity given where we sit with a rapid rebuild of the airline, getting people in position, getting people ready for the future, as Dan said, just covering the operation. And so you, you have not only just more more people than, than, than capacity relative to where we're eventually going to end up once our business is restored, but on top of that, you've got a higher level of added costs going into the current, the current funnel to ensure that you're, you're delivering great service and building for the future at the same time on a reduced basic capacity. So, so that's a big part of it. Uh, you also you know, have you know, the restoration costs and maintenance and, and training and other, other elements that are another layer. And so you know, we're gonna see this layers of costs and employee costs before we see the results in additional revenue. What is your next drill down? A little company called Apple. I think I've heard of it. Trades under AAPL. Shares were flat today, and they've only gained 16% in a year. So the company coming out today and saying that uh, chip shortages are indeed going to le- lead to a shortages of phones and the availability to sell those phones. Um, this is something, obviously, we've been hearing from every company, certainly the auto companies, but really every kind of comp- company under the sun talking about the sh- chip shortages and how it's affecting their business. Apple had thought that they might be immune in some ways, or at least that was a suggestion 
of the business news, business press today that Apple said they'd be fine, but they weren't going to be fine. And I just, I was like, I, I don't remember that from the last quarterly call. So I went back and looked at the last conference call, listened to the last conference call from Apple. And indeed, Apple did say, we're going to have some problems here with our chips. We've done what we can. They gave some more color talking about where they're seeing those shortages. They certainly weren't uh, gung-ho to talk about them. But when asked, Apple Cook, uh, Tim uh, Cook, didn't Donald Trump call him Apple Cook once? Did he? Tim Apple. He called him Tim Apple. That was it. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, anyway, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm just as bad. Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, um, talking about the constraints they've gotten in getting the chips, but really saying that they were not the specific chips that Apple usually contracts to have built for their phones, their, the, the CPU chips, but it was some of the other chips that are across the industry, the, the nodes of types of chips that lots of phones have that don't make Apple phones special. It's the special ones Apple said they were going to have enough of. Though the problem is, at least they said in the last conference call, that it was some of those other uh, industry, uh, industry-wide shortages that were going to affect them in the production of iPhones and the iPad and the Mac um, but uh, specifically the iPhone. Here's what Tim Cook had to say. Uh, in the majority of constraints we're seeing are of the variety that I think others are seeing that are I would uh, classify as industry shortage. We do have some shortages uh, in addition to that that are where the demand has been so great and so beyond our own expectations that it's difficult to get the entire set of parts uh, within the lead times that, that we try to get those. And so it's, uh, it's a little bit of that as well. Uh, the, the, as I said before, and I, I think probably maybe with the basis of your question, the, uh, sort of the latest nodes, uh, which we use in, in several of our products, have not been as much of an issue. The the legacy nodes are where the supply constraints have been. Well, that's only getting worse now, and the company is sort of saying it's going to be a little bit worse than they thought without quantifying those numbers. Um, but I again, I think if you read the business press today, you would have thought, oh, my God, the sky's falling. Apple's just admitted to a problem, but they actually were talking about it weeks and months ago. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at Berkeley Lights. Berkeley Lights trades under BLI. Shares rose almost 7% today, but they've tumbled 72% over the past 12 months. Yeah, Berkeley Lights has, has struggled and was the subject of some critical coverage from a short-selling firm called Scorpion Capital. Berkeley Lights responded uh, to Scorpion Capital by um, increasing some of their guidance. And the Scorpion Capital came back in a series of tweets today to explain why the Berkeley Lights news what maybe wasn't as good as it may have seemed. Uh, I'm going to try to present the, both of those fairly if I can. I'm sure they'll both be bad at me afterwards. But um, Berkeley Lights is a company that uh, tries to create these modules to help scientists understand cells and look at cells, so import cells, culture those cells, assay them and export the, inter- the information uh, using light patterns to move the cells into a position on a plate so they can really understand uh, what what is in those cells and what's happening to those cells, hence the name Berkeley Lights. They sell these machines for about $2 million each. They change their process for selling the machines and they're kind of leasing machines out uh, through a different process of sales that made it look like, well, wait, maybe the market isn't as big as you thought. Maybe customers aren't willing to pay $2 bucks for these machines. 
So uh, Scorpion Capital, that was one of their criticisms of the of what's happening at Berkeley Light, suggests the machines just weren't great. Interviewing a bunch of customers, saying the machines weren't as good as, as, um, as some might have thought. Um, but uh, the company um, guiding towards uh, 24 million in revenues for the third quarter, um, it might make it tough for them to get to their their end results, their end guided results for the year. At least that was the accusation by Scorpion Capital. And saying, uh, you know, well, what did they do to get orders at the end of the quarter? We put out our, out our critical uh, story about them in the middle of September. Did they just start cutting prices and lowering prices uh, in order to make the quarter, in order to, you know, make Scorpion Capital's uh, 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 analytical critique look faulty? If Berkeley Lights, of course, lower their prices, maybe they get a bunch of sales, even if it wasn't a lot of profitability into the uh, uh, unit profitability into the end of the quarter. Uh, but I thought it was also interesting to see at the same time and to hear the CEO uh, out there on the road meeting with investors and talking about uh, different ways to change their business model of selling straight to customers and instead maybe renting or finding partners so the companies don't have to come out and put the full $2 million out there. Here is CEO Eric Hubbs insisting that this isn't a change in their business plan. Yeah, and again, it's, a, it's, it's not a switch of the business model as much as it is, it is a complementary route. Right mm-hmm. for for customers to access our technology, and again, you know, when we thought about you know who could benefit from from the tech access, this is where we saw a class of customers who was coming to Berkeley Lights that you know they had seven to ten million dollars in the bank, and 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 taking two million dollars out of the bank and putting it down on a on a on a on a platform wasn't you know didn't didn't seem like the right thing to do for them and their boards, and so you know this this tech access capability now gives them or model allows them to access the technology. So when you're looking at a business that's doing, you know, $78 million in revenues for over the last 12 months, you know, a $2 million unit purchase to get a couple more in the quarter is a pretty big swing and could make a difference for them in the upcoming quarter. We'll see when they report results, but uh, definitely this is one to keep an eye on because you've got some real strong charges coming against the company and the company trying to refute them, maybe not completely. All right, coming up, we've got a really interesting conversation with a really interesting company that for a very long time has been trying to create a a new way to move information on the internet. They haven't quite got there yet. We'll talk to Lightwave Logic CEO, Dr. Michael Levy, when the drill down continues. The drill down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. Welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast. We're joined right now by Michael Lebby. He is the CEO of Lightwave Logic, um, and uh, glad to have you on. Thanks for coming by. So what is Lightwave Logic? What do you guys do? So we're a company that's based in Colorado, and we make what is known as optical modulated devices. These are devices that get used in the internet. You know, the internet where you have your uh, traffic, where you go on to different internet sites where you're working from home or on a video platform. And our devices switch light really fast. They do it also at low power. So why is this interesting? It's because the our devices, if they can switch light really fast, then you can send internet traffic a lot faster. And so we've all really sort of suffered, you know, through the pandemic where 
you know, we've had situations where, where the signal hasn't good and we've turned the camera off to try and get a better quality signal. Story of my life. Story of this podcast. Yeah. I'm constantly yeah. doing that. Completely. And so if the signal going into your home or the signal going across the internet can go up faster speeds, then we wouldn't have these problems at all. And we've got a technology that switches like really fast. So um, where are you in the stages? Because I see your company has zero revenues. Is that right? You haven't sold any of these yet. That's correct. We're a pre-revenue company. Um, but our technology, um, unlike other optical switcher technologies that are out there into the network today, that use semiconductors, our technology uses polymers, optical polymers. And these polymers um, operate similar to like a liquid crystal type uh, situation in a TV where if you apply a field or a voltage across the polymer, you can actually switch the light. And so these are called electro-optic polymers. And so we make those polymers in Colorado and we um, put them into devices and those devices switch light really quickly and they get used in the internet. So you, um, uh, you will, or they will be at some point in time. What, when, like when, at what point in the development process are you and where, when will this, to whom will you sell these? So this is, uh, obviously, this, obviously this starts with the chemistry and you turn the chemistry into actually a physical device. So the part where we are today is we, we have made prototypes and we have tested our own modulators and we've shown results. Even today at the earlier presentation today, uh, we showed results that showed performance two to three times faster than what's out there in the internet today. So super high performance. And so, yes, we've got prototype devices um, and um, we're actually positioning ourselves to scale those prototype devices into full-scale product. With whom would this uh, compete once you get a product ready for market? So the internet is full of optical components already. Sure, and it has so, been for decades. And uh, so we would compete with modulators made from silicon or indium phosphide. Which companies are I'm saying? Um, the companies that really drive uh, silicon photonics, silicon modulators are companies like the Intels and the Cisco's of this world. The companies that do the indium phosphide modulators are companies like Lumentum's of this world. Um, and there's plenty of other companies too. Uh, like for example, I think in Japan, Fujitsu has indium phosphide modulators. And so what we represent is a company having a device that is much, much faster and much lower power. Lower power is actually one of those key hot buttons when you talk to anybody in fiber optics who's dealing with data centers and different types of switch scenarios, servers and routers. Keeping the power consumption down is actually key these days. Um, who, you'll sell these to uh, the makers of the boxes that, that go into the sort of the routers and switches in the internet? Do you sell them to the Cisco's and Ericsson's of, of the world? So the customer base will include those types of companies you just mentioned. But we also have to remember the, these uh, customers today are vertically integrated. And what I mean by vertically integrated means is that they have pretty much everything in their uh, portfolio. They can design chips. They can package chips, they can put them into modules, they can make line cards, they can do subsystems. And so as a company trying to sell components, you have to be flexible not only to sell components, but some of these customers will say, hey, we've got our own big fab, or we've got our own manufacturing site, or we have our own contract manufacturer. We need you to work with them so we can use your product. So we have to be flexible enough 
with this type of technology that we can do tech transfer or even licensing our technology to some of the big CMOS silicon foundries, for example. And it just depends on the type of customer you talk to. So talk about how old the company is. When I looked at it through the financial filings, it says the company was formed in 1997 um, uh, in, an, in a Nevada corp. Is that right? That is true. Yeah, the original founders, they're not with us anymore. Uh, the original founders uh, actually came from DuPont. And so they started an entity in the late 1990s. I believe we first were uh, conformed to the public markets around about 2006. And from about 2006 to when I joined in 2015, the company really focused on developing the materials, the chemical materials, the electro-optic polymers, the polymers that can switch light when you apply a voltage to them. And then when I joined, um, we really built out the company to turn the chemistry material into devices, into actually modulated devices where you can actually use them physically in the internet. And, and what was your background? What were you doing before that? Um, my background is, is um, well, obviously I'm a techie and I have been a techie for a long time, but I started off in this country, I, as you can probably tell from my accent, I came from London, but I came here in 1985, worked at Bell Labs and then worked at various other places like Motorola and Intel in corporate research and development. That means I haven't been a, a professor per se, but I've worked in taking new innovative ideas in industry and turning them into products. Yes, your doctor. Doc, what, what's your doctorate in? Uh, my doctorate. I'm in, hoping it's something really, really geeky. <laughs> it's um, actually when I got my doctorate, I was doing gallium arsenide and indium phosphide materials, and I was fabricating those materials into both electronic transistors as well as LEDs and lasers. I was going to say it was mo it's mostly semiconductors uh, yeah, with gallium arsenide, and, yeah, um, uh, and and. Is this fundamentally different than other um, optical devices? Because optical switches and optical devices have been in the market for a very long time. Um, yeah, for example, you can... I mean, it's relative, but, you know, 15 it's years. It's relative. Take, take liquid crystals, right? They're, they're an optical switch. But you use them in televisions and displays, like LC displays, LCD displays. But if you notice, the, the, the displays actually get a blur because you can't switch the light very quickly. And so, yes, there are other materials that switch light, but there's very few that switch light at the speed that is required for the next generation internet type systems. And so the materials that we've developed and optimized switch light super fast, and they do it at voltages less than a volt. That's very low voltage. Now, if you think about that for a second, most modulators need their own driver, driver chip. And you have a driver chip, you have to purchase your own IC or an independent IC to drive the modulator. If the modulator can be driven with voltages of a volt or less, you can drive it from any CMOS circuit. So if you've got an ASIC or a DSP or even an FPGA, you don't need a driver chip. Which is to say that those are chips that are, for those not in chip land, are dumb chips. An ASIC chip or an FPGA, a programmable log, fully programmable logic, is a chip that really doesn't do too much. It doesn't require a lot of power. It's not very complicated. It's not like the CPU in your in your personal computer or your phone that's doing incredible tasks. And it, it is a, a dedicated chip that does very simple tasks, where it operates at low power, doesn't take up a lot of space, doesn't get too hot. So some of that's true. Well, I think the message, what I'm trying to say is, is the customer doesn't need to buy independent driver chips. They can drive their modulators from any silicon circuitry. Now, 
One of the other things that you mentioned was power. DSP chips, digital signal processing chips, are actually used today and they consume tons of power because yeah, yeah. they're, you know, they're five, six, seven nanometer uh, nodes. And so they're very expensive silicon. They're used to clean up the optical signal because today's optical devices don't go very fast. And so what we have today, if you look out there into the network, modulators that work roughly about 30 to 40 gigahertz in bandwidth. Um, I'm slowing down here because I'm getting into some technical terms. And so to get a higher speed, so a 30 gigahertz device goes 50 gigabits per second. That's fairly fast. If you want it to double the speed, you use a PAM4 encoding, which is a special encoding of the optical signal, so you can double the speed. You need electronics to do that. Electronics consumes a lot of power. Now, this is where we are today. If you had a device that went three times as fast, and I just showed results this morning that showed our devices with bandwidths of a over 100 gigahertz, that's three times faster. You may take the choice that, hey, maybe I don't want to use the expensive electronics. Or maybe you do and go double or triple the speed. So you're giving the customer more options for how they plan their, how they would plan their network. Now you've sold uh, even more stock this summer. The company sold another $30 million in stock this summer. Uh, is that right, uh, in July? So we certainly put a deal together with Lincoln Capital. Right. And out of that deal, we had, uh, they invested $3 million of cash to us. And so why would we want to do something like that? Because once you get onto NASDAQ, when we were listed on NASDAQ on the 1st of September, and NASDAQ gives you the opportunity to work with big institutional banks to raise more money. And if you can do that, then you can get to market faster. And really the goal here is to get our technology ubiquitous into the optical network. And to do that, you need to have scale. Yeah, um, which gets back to my original question. So uh, when does that happen? When do you think you're going to actually start selling product? <clears throat> so we haven't provided that detailed guidance of yet, but what we have done this year is, is we have provided guidance on working with big CMOS uh, foundries, silicon foundries, and you need the partnership with the big foundries to get the scale for commercialization. I mean, it'd be silly for us to go put a big silicon fab together ourselves because they cost about a billion dollars and that doesn't make any sense. It takes a minute to build too. <laughs> so if you can partner with the folks who really got the, uh, you know, the building in place and the facilities in place, then you can get to market faster. So I haven't really answered your question because we haven't provided public guidance, but we're certainly working that problem as hard as we can. Dr. Michael Lebby, thank you very much for your time. He's the CEO of Lightwave Logic. And thanks for coming by while we're here at the LD Microconference. We do appreciate it. Well, coming up next, we'll have the drill down bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot, shedding a little more light on Lightwave Logic. But first. The drill down is brought to you by ERA. With ERA, give yourself an information advantage. Connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And you can listen to the Drill Down every day on your smart speaker. Just ask your smart speaker to play the Drill Down podcast, and you can listen to our latest show. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following it at Drill Down Pod, and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. And we're back with the Drill Down Bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. Isaac, you heard us talk about the uh, uh, with Dr. Lebby. 
about uh, their recent funding round where they sold $30 million worth of stock to a firm called Lincoln Park. Well, here's a number to tell you a lot about this company and maybe something about their relationship with Lincoln Park. 125. In 125 weeks, since the first time Lincoln Park gave this company money, they sold a bunch of money. They have had a repeating relationship with, I can't see how many times, uh, but it's over and over and over and over and over and over again. Lightwave has gone to, sold stock to Lincoln Park. And then what does Lincoln Park do with this uh, stock? Well, one can presume they hold it or sell it. Uh-huh. Interesting number. So it's happened over and over again, 125 weeks since the first time. So Lincoln Park has been a constant uh, financial supporter of Lightwave, which, you know, uh, they, it's a company with zero revenues uh, and, and, a, and a market cap of a billion dollars. How do I find my own Lincoln Park? Uh, someone to support you for, for 10 <laughs> years without any revenues? You want a sugar daddy? Are you calling, I want my own Lincoln are you Park. calling Lincoln Park a sugar daddy? <laughs> yeah. uh, you said that. I think that they are a financial support. They must believe in the story. Hey, yeah. What's not to believe? Right. Sounded interesting. Sure. Lack of revenues. I don't know. We don't give financial advice on this show. Uh, my old boss, when I was in the business of running money, used to say to me, all right, Corey, you want to find a stock to short? Why don't you find one with no revenues? But I wouldn't suggest that with this one because this thing has got a fantastic market cap with no revenues and has for quite a while, or at least since June, it's had quite the run. All right, you've been listening to the Drill Down Podcast. We're so glad to have you, especially from the special event here at the LD Micro Conference in Los Angeles. And here in Los Angeles, I get so lucky I could sit across from Isaac Webster, our executive producer. I can sit next to Ben Wilson, our editor extraordinaire. The Drill Down's a production of the Business Podcast Network.